Well, how many people like being here? It's good fun, isn't it? I reckon we're doing like the All Blacks. We're like the All Blacks in terms of church venues. This is our backup venue. How about that? It's not a bad spot, is it? Nice wooden floors, mostly, apart from the hole. We made a hole in the floor today. Uh, yeah. Well, not we, not everybody, me and Tim. Uh, yeah, yeah. I won't say which Tim, but because uh, not, not this Tim. But anyway, I won't say which Tim. But uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, I reckon we're blessed, aren't we? That we've got spaces where we can meet like this. Uh, where there's car parking, mostly. Uh, heaters when we bring them, and uh, and a space where we can worship and praise God. You know, I really believe that the church, so the wider, the, the big thing church, is designed to change the world. Uh, you know, church, you know, the body of Christ, you know, our little congregation here, we're not gathering together just to help each other survive. Uh, we do want to do that. That's important, isn't it? We want to help each other survive. That's, that's something we do on the way to our objective. And our objective is to turn the world upside down. That's what happened in the book of Acts. That's what's happened throughout history, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is supposed to turn the world upside down. Amen? That's why I, that's why I was praying before God, do something in our hearts today that is a blessing in the city tomorrow. Amen? Do you agree? Yeah, is that our theology? That's actually our theology. That's how we believe the world is shaped. We're not here just keeping each other warm until Jesus comes back. Uh, we're not hiding out, right? There are people doing that in Featherston. You can just hide out there. I know of a, there's a Christian community just in the, in the hills near Featherston. Uh, they bought land. They sold up. They bought land in 1999 because it was, it was going to be the end of the world. 17 years later, you're still waiting for the end of the world. What are you going to do next? You know, you're going to move from Featherston to where? Where's next? After that, we can get even more secluded and more hidden. The reality is, no, where's the light of the world? God lights our life, and then Jesus himself puts us on a stand so that we can give the light of God to all the city. Not us individually, but us as the body of Christ. Amen? Very, very good. Awesome. We're starting a new series today uh, that uh, John and I have been doing uh, research on. It's, there's a book that a guy's written. His name's Levi. Help me, John. How are we saying his surname? Lusco. Levi Lusco. Um, and he's written a book called Swipe Right. Everyone say Swipe Right. Swipe Right. It's the life and death power of love, sex, and romance. Right? <laughs> So, Tadika's <laughs> a little bit too excited about the, the topic, but, uh, but the, the book is a good book, and then we're preaching along his sort of ideas and bits and pieces uh, for the next five weeks, to today and then through the month of July, uh, not because we love talking about sex. Uh, sex is much better just experienced rather than talked about. Uh, it's definitely a better participant sport than a spectator sport. The reality is... The reality is that sex and sexuality, love and romance is a life and death thing. It has an impact on who we are as people. Uh, when we get it right, it has a powerful impact for positive life, positive connection, for a happy life, for a motivated life, for a focused life. When we get it wrong, it can create all sorts of anxieties, depressions, and all sorts of difficulty in our life. Now, why is that bad? Why is it bad if we do this wrong? It's bad because we don't get to fulfill our potential. It's not bad because we're dirty. When we, get, when we get sex and sexuality wrong, when we get things out of shape, it's the same as when you break the road rules on the car. You know, when the policeman pulls you over breaking the road rules, they don't give you a lecture about how morally corrupt you are. They just point out the fact that, that was a, that's a dangerous way to drive your car. 
And it's the same when it comes to our sex and sexuality. Because of, because I'm not, I haven't started on my notes. This could be a long sermon. Because of, because of a Greek thinking, not Christian thinking, because of Greek thinking, we've got, we've inherited through Western culture, a body is evil, spirit is holy mentality. It's not in the Bible. It's not in Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches that all of what God created is holy, or it was created holy, and all of what God created was corrupted by sin. But all of it can be saved, redeemed, and sanctified through the work of Jesus Christ, through the grace of God. Amen. Amen? Very good. So across the series, there's an objective that we've got, and it's this. This is the objective. We want to, as a group of people, we want to, we're going to regret-proof our marriage beds and our death beds, right? So from this day forward, right, we can't do anything about, so let's, we can't do anything about yesterday or the, you know, high school or, you know, whatever. We can't do anything about that. But from this day forward, let's live our life today. Let's live carefully today in such a way that when we get to our future, we'll like what we get when we get there. Imagine if we could get, you know, if you're single, that you can get to your marriage bed, not regretting the things you did from today onwards. Not regretting the, the partners that maybe you took or the mistakes that were made. Maybe we could get, some of us, when we get to our deathbed, we can look back and say, no, I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I am a great grandparent. I've set an example. I've set a shape for the generations to come where I don't have regrets. Amen? Do you know, we can't, like I said, we can't do anything about the past, and the past includes last night and last year and the last decade, right? But from this day forward, we can live a life that is something that's going to be, God, that's something that God can bless, right? So everyone say, swipe right. And we're going to start with a story. Uh, then we're going to start with a, this, just a little idea out of the story of Moses, right? How many of you know the whole Moses deal is all about freedom? And it's all about transformation. It's about a journey from slavery and corruption to, to promise and prosperity, right? That's the whole journey of Moses. And in Exodus 15, we're going to pick up the story there. It's sort of what's already happened is that Moses has come out. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years. He comes out of the wilderness. He goes to see his step. Uh, his sort of foster brother, who's now the king of the world. And he says, you know, he says, come on, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. And then uh, Moses says, come on, bro. Uh, and uh, I just... Did like that, do? Yeah. Anyway, there's, then there's drama, you know, so we, we could talk about this plagues and pestilence and, and lies and, you know, uh, itchy sores, um, maybe uh, the river turns blood. All this sort of stuff happens. Ultimately, there's a judgment of death that comes against uh, Egypt, and the children of Israel are finally, they're sort of not just released, they get expelled, you know, get out. And so they race out and they leave in a hurry. They're told to get ready, but they leave in a hurry. Right, and then they travel, and one of the first things that happen is they come they come across the Red Sea, big salty sea, right? And then they cross the Red Sea. This miracle they get through, and then they're praising God on the other side. And then they travel now for three days from the Red Sea, and they get to this next place, right? It says in verse twenty-two, Moses leads them, uh, uh, the children of Israel, away from the Red Sea, right? Even say Red Sea, and then they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. Right? How much water can you carry? <laughs> like, a, like not, th- not quite three days worth of water, right? Especially if some of the people you're traveling with are camels, right? You need quite a bit of water to keep the whole thing going, right? So they traveled three days without any water. Where they, where they just come from, 
the Red Sea. It's a salty desert sea, and they're traveling through. They're not finding any water. Verse 23, when they come to the oasis of Mara, right? And there was the, they get to Mara, and the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Mara, which means bitter, one of those classic Bible names. Right. Then the people complained and they turned against Moses and they said, what are we going to drink? They demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Brilliant, isn't it? The Lord, how about that for revelation? A prophetic word you can stand up in church. I can see, I see a picture of a piece of wood and then sit down, right? But the Lord shows Moses a piece of wood and, uh, and that was the answer, right? So Moses threw it in the water. Here's a piece of wood, throw it in the water, and this made the water good to drink. Again, right? Write the science textbook for that. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? There's this water's too bitter to drink. They've just left the Red Sea, was the last bit of water they had. So they've got salty water, they've got bitter fresh water, they're trapped in this place where they've got no sustenance, no life. And the solution is to throw a piece of wood into the water, right? It was there at Mara that the Lord set before them the following decree, right? This is the whole point of the story, right? As a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight. Uh, what, you, what we're saying is if we can swipe right, if we can live right in his sight, obeying his commandments and keeping all of his decrees, then, this is God speaking, I will not make you suffer any of the diseases that I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Everyone say, he heals me. He's the Lord who heals me. Everyone say, he heals me. Right, the worst place to die of of dehydration would be on the ocean, wouldn't it? That'd be the worst possible place. Like the, the irony of it would just be—is that irony? I always get confused. Right, that actually is irony. Ten thousand spoons when all you need is a knife—that's just annoying. It's not ironic. But to die of dehydration when surrounded by water—that would be the ultimate sort of irony, wouldn't it? The, the irony would kill you before the dehydration did, right? And the reality is that this is the situation the children of Israel were. Three days traveling in a desert, right? They've gone through the salty sea. They get to this lake, right? You can imagine it. We're walking through the desert day one, day two, day three. By halfway through the first half hour of day one, I would be complaining from then onwards, right? So it's been, we've been complaining. We've been walking. It's been hot, uh, it's been terrifying. We've been thrust out of what was our home for generations. Uh, we've been chased by uh, we've been chased by the Egyptians, right? We're 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 under pressure. We're 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 struggling. We're suffering, and then we see an oasis. All of our prayers are answered, right? And so the you know so some whoever sees it first starts running. We all start running to the oasis, and then we see it, and everyone's diving into the water and splashing each other, and you know, and, and it'd be just like, wow, wow, you know, awesome, awesome. And then people start drinking the water, and before they've drunk hardly any water at all, they start to actually spew it up or vomit it up, like it hits their stomach. That's what the that's what it's saying is the water wasn't when it says bitter. This one is like poisonous. Like everything, this is exactly what we're after. We dive into it, start drinking it, right? Hits our stomach and then blah, out of it, right? That's the situation that they're in. They're, they're, they're dead seas their way. Then they find this water. It turns out to be poisonous, right? They know there's no water back that way for three days. 
They don't really know what's that way for how far. And they're stuck in this place where they've got this water. They're surrounded by water. Or as the title of the sermon this week is, there's water, water everywhere, but there's not a drop to drink, right? And it's actually a bit of an analogy of where we are today in terms of how sexuality is portrayed in our culture, in terms of how people talk, how people live, how people behave, in terms of how uh, the media and TV, movies, that sort of thing portray sex and sexuality, there's no shortage of sex, right? You don't have to go far to see sexually explicit advertising. You don't have to search hard to find anything of all sorts of things of sexual nature on internet, on television, uh, in conversation. Uh, And there's no shortage of sex, right? But it's not 100% helpful what's going on. So we're surrounded by this thing that we know we need. We know that it's good. We're surrounded by it, but it's bitter. And it's actually, there's some damaging things happening in the world around our sex and sexuality. Did you know, here's an interesting thing that um, are not psychologists, sociologists, so even less scientific, sorry, Doug, so Dougal looks down scientifically on sociologists, but so they say that between the 1700s, so 1700 and 1900, there's a huge change in human history. That's the Industrial Revolution, right? It was a massive change in human history. They say, the, the sociologists, the people out there, they say that there's more change, it's generally thought of that there was more change in human culture and human ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of behaving between 1700 and 1900 than all of history before 1700. There was more change in that 200-year period. Did you know from 1980 to today, these same, these same sociologists say, there's been more change in human thought, behavior, and activity and society in the last 30 years than all of human history before 1980. It's massive change. The expectations of what, what people expect in life. Pastor Graham tells a story of traveling in the jungle in Borneo. Now, I don't know if you can imagine Pastor Graham. Safari hat. Short sleeve shirt and trousers, long socks, sandals, going through the jungle, right? Uh, in Borneo, and he's traveling from church to church, village to village, and he, they're trying to find the pastor of the local church. Then they finally find him. He's, he's 40 meters, right? It's Pastor Graham telling this story, somewhere between four and a thousand meters. He's right up the top of a tall jungle tree, right? Now, yeah, maybe he had a difficult Sunday, but anyway, that's where he was when they found him, right? But why was he up there? It's because he had his 3G cell phone tucked into his grass skirt and he's trying to get cell phone coverage to send an email right before climbing back down and going to 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 kill a pig with his bare hands and cook it over an open fire before feeding them in a log hut now the reality is that's a crazy world right that we've got digital technology sweeping the globe and there's somebody there's a pastor that we know of whose whose life is intersecting from the prehistoric to the the extreme modern, these two worlds collide in his reality, right? So everything changes in our expectation of how much money we need, what sort of a job we need, what sort of appliances that we need around our house. Uh, and the biggest change most recently is the interconnected nature of mobile technology. The studies show that people on average in America, people on average will check their phone every six minutes, 150 times a day, whip it out. Slide, swipe right, see what's happening, check for notifications. And in fact, there's this thing that's developed um, 
biomedically sort of it's a bit of a cross between what's happening in your body what's happening in your mind and it's referred to let me get the quote right it's called phantom vibration sensation I don't know, we could do a bit of a show of hands. How many of you have experienced this? You're standing in a conversation often with boring people. So you're chatting with boring people, right? Happens more, I found happens more often when I'm talking with boring people, right? And, and you, your phone vibrates in your pocket. It, it, you don't, it actually vibrates in your pocket, right? And suddenly like, wow, someone likes me, someone loves me, someone's, someone's, someone's liked my Instagram, they've Snapchatted me, right? I've got a Tinder hookup, whatever. You pull your phone out of your pocket, you pull your phone out of your pocket only to realize that nothing's happened, right? Show of hands, how many people have experienced phantom vibration sensation? Can I tell you what's happening? You didn't imagine your phone vibrating. Your brain is just so desperately craving the dopamine hit that you get when somebody likes your post that it's creating the dopamine hit all by itself. What is this doing to us? Dude, the funny thing is that we don't know. Because it's how long have we had mobile smartphones? Do we know what this is doing to our brains? Do we know what this is doing? Nobody knows. Right? You know, this is sort of this, this, this technological world exploration into this whole new reality. We don't know whether we're sailing off the edge of the map into oblivion or we're going to find some brave new land. We don't actually know. We don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know how the brains of... So, so for instance, our daughter Lucia has never had to wait for the next episode. She just comes up on Netflix. She's never had to wait till next week. She's never had that dreaded thing in the Batman, to be continued, right? She's never had to experience something like Danger Mouse where it seems like there is only four episodes, right? And every four years, they throw them out again, right? She never has to miss out because, and her brain, how does that affect her brain? Do you know what? Nobody knows. We can guess how it might be affecting her brain. We can think about it, but we don't actually know. Do you know, when I was young, uh, you know, the question we got to ask ourselves is, how is it affecting sex, dating, relationships? Right? So when I was young, you met nice girls in church, and other people met other girls other places. Right? You met nice girls in church. And there was a, there was a great, like, this, mass, this, this interesting movie, whole new concept called You've Got Mail, right, where Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, they're exchanging heartfelt, meaningful emails backwards and forwards, right? And it was this revolution in relationships that they could develop this relationship without even meeting each other, right? But that actually is quite a quaint concept in comparison to what can happen now, Right? Well, you got mail is not really how it works anymore. You know, like I said, when I was young, we, we, you know, we met nice girls in church. Well, I did. That was my focus. That was my reason for being there. Uh, you might meet someone in the bar or the university library or a friend's party, but nowadays we have an app for that. Like everything else, we've got an app for that. And like every app, it's specifically designed to make it what? Easy. How does it affect our brain when sex and relationships is easy? How do, or, or it's less awkward, right? Now, I would, have, I would have done anything to be less awkward when I was 18, right? I don't know if there's an app that would make me less awkward. But, it was, but, but the apps, apps nowadays, the dating apps are designed to make things easy, less awkward, cheaper, and of course, instant, as instant as possible. 
Speaking of instant, I love Amazon's imagining their new, their new, one of Amazon's possible new strategies is they're setting up in major cities where they've got big networks, setting up drone towers for delivering goods. So you click buy and a drone sets off to deliver it. Right? Straight to your door. That's awesome. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of dating and relationship apps which are different to what you what might have been like your like your uh, desperately seeking uh, you know the the wanted ads in the back of the newspapers and all that sort of stuff and and the big the big one is Tinder right the big one is Tinder and and all of the dating apps now are just copying Tinder and so how Tinder works and some of you are gonna have to pretend you don't know what I'm talking about here uh, and uh, just oh okay wow yeah that's bizarre right uh, so just practice that if you want to practice that those of you who are heavy Tinder users make sure your phone is on do not disturb because it would be real awkward to get a Tinder notification when we're talking about it at church wouldn't it but the idea is it's just a photo so a photo appears on the phone and you swipe left if you don't like it and you swipe right if you think oh yeah there's a little bit of a bio so you can, people can lie about stuff. And it's just a straight, instant, look at them, like them or hate them. Like, like yeah, le- yeah, maybe you're not. And so pe- you can swipe hundreds of times a day. So Tinder users just keep going all day. And it's a numbers game. The more you swipe, the more likely you'll find someone who will swipe you back. And then you can meet and, and, and obviously talk, walk along the beach, hold hands, those sorts of things. Right, but it's it's the ultimate of the, it's the shallowest possible way of hooking up, of connecting. What do they look like? I like I swipe. It's, it's it's all about what I think about them. It's not about who they might be. It's just whether I am physically attracted to that person as a potential sexual partner. Right. Uh, there's an article in Vanity Fair. If you Google Vanity Fair Tinder, this article will come up. There's, they've done a few interesting sort of articles. And, and this journalist sat in a Manhattan bar after work on a Friday and just watched people. So the whole bar is full of young professional people, all on their phones, all just working Tinder, even in groups. What do you think? Getting opinions of other people, right? And so then he just has these conversations with people. And I've just got a few of the more highly disturbing comments that were made, Right. Uh, he says this. He says, finding a sex partner for these for young professionals, uh, they'd find it is, this, is as easy as finding a cheap flight to Florida. It's like ordering Seamless, which is a food delivery service, says Dan, the investment banker, referring to online food delivery. It's, but, but instead of ordering food, you're ordering a person. Sex has become so easy, says John. He's 26, a marketing executive in New York. I can go on my phone right now and no doubt I can find someone to, I can have sex with this evening, probably before midnight. Uh, someone wrote, uh, a, a woman academic wrote this. It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of like an option. Uh, they say they don't want to be in relationships. That's what he says about all the young men that he meets in the bar. Uh, I don't want one, says Nick. I don't want to have to deal with all the stuff. Uh, You can't be selfish in a relationship, Brian says. It feels good just to do what I want. I ask them if it ever feels like they lack a deeper connection with someone. There's a small silence, and after a moment, John says, I think at some points it does. It's an interesting article to read. Uh, like I, I, the, the articles, he cites the article, the writer of the book cites it. So I looked at the article. And it's interesting, not, not from a like, wow, that's a terrible, look, look at the lifestyle of these young professionals in Manhattan. But just the, the fact that if you look at the article, the things that they're saying from the way their thinking is being shaped by the way dating is working. 
it, it's, it's not that it's, it's not that it's, because people have always, you know, let's face it, fornication has been happening a long, long time, right? It's not, that's not new. But the way the app work is shifting how modern people, including us, it's shifting how we think about relationships. You know, recent statistics from Tinder show that they've recently recorded their one trillionth swipe. You're like, wow, what's a trillion? There were a trillion seconds between the year zero and the year 2012. So how many... (laughs) How much activity have they got going on? How much money are they making from their app, right? The reality is it's affecting how people think, right? It's affecting how people respond to other people, right? Pornography is also changing the way our brains work. Again, pornography has been around a long time, but not just pornography, but pornography as a digital media is reshaping the human mind, reshaping how our brains work. And in many ways, you could say distorting it. Do you know, there's not really a comparison or a connection between the dirty magazines you might have bumped into in somebody's dad's garage and what happens in terms of digital pornography media, right? They're not really the same thing. So when I was nine, someone snuck a Playboy magazine into school and I bumped into the same helpful publication uh, in my early teens. But today, the average age of, in America of a child's exposure to digital pornography is six years old. That's the average age of exposure, right? The reason for that is, the why, how could that possibly be? One, uh, sorry, 36%, so more than one third, 36% of the internet is pornography. So when someone says the internet, more than one third of what they're talking about is pornography. That's not, that's not a Christian pastor's definition of pornography either. Right? That's the media, world media's definition of pornography, right? Now, should we feel bad about this? We should feel bad about it, we, but we need to understand this. This is how our world is working, right? At any given day, 1.7 million, any given day, in any given moment. So right now, 1.7 million pornographic videos are being streamed. So 1.7 million every second of every day, 24 hours a day, those videos are being streamed, right? As many as one-third of 13- and 14-year-old boys and the numbers for girls are catching up are described as addicted or heavy porn users watching up to 50 clips per week. Now, those are statistics specifically put in here to frighten and appall you. But the reality is that those statistics shouldn't frighten and appall us. They should help us understand that we as the church need to get our head around how is this supposed to work? Because it's clearly not supposed to work like that. But how are we supposed to understand it? The question I've got to ask and you, we've got to ask ourselves all the time is what does this do to our brains? What does it do to our, the way our dopamine receptors work? What does it do to sexual realities? What does it do in the future? What does it do to relationships in the future? The reality is... There's a lot of sex around. There's water everywhere, but there's not a drop to drink. So here's a good question. What are we supposed to do? Uh, well, we didn't get to choose. We didn't get to choose, did we? I didn't, get, I didn't choose to be born in 1976. Right? You didn't get to choose. You, no one gets to choose what generation they're born into. You could be like, you could, we, could, we could be blaming the Gen Ys, you know, because us Gen Xs were so much more. Yeah, the baby boomers can blame us all, but at the moment we're all blaming the baby boomers, right? But no one gets to choose. Kids born today, don't get, they didn't get to choose to be born into a digital age. 
I didn't get to be choose to be born on the cusp of it, right? The reality is I could, I could if I wanted to, join the, my friends in Featherston waiting for an apocalypse, right? Because they see they're running out of air, running out of energy. They're looking for more helpers to keep the whole thing going, right? The year 2018 bug. It's harder and harder to sell, right? Obviously, you know, after 2008, I was able to swing straight into the whole Mayan one. So that was easy. But, uh, but the reality is we could... We could, we could smash our laptops with an axe. We could, we could get back to brick phones. You know, we could do that. Uh, we, could, we could pull out of the digital world altogether. We could stop watching television altogether. Uh, and, and that might be for a season in your life, for the situation that you're dealing with in your own world, there might be really legitimate reasons to do that. But as a culture of Christians, we can't just not be in the world. Because if we're just not in the world, how are we supposed to be the light of the world? Jesus lights our life and then he wants to position us in a way where the light of who he is is reflected out of us. Where the good deeds, the way that we live is reflected out of us. So we could stop swiping altogether or we could learn to swipe right in God's sight. That's out of the book. That's a line out of the book. If anything sounds really snappy, understand it's from an American preacher and I've just translated it into New Zealand. So, the, yeah, if we stop swiping, how do we reach the world? We've got to learn. We've got to, we've got to allow God to work in us. We've got to allow God to do it in us. So Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, this is Moses 40 years before the previous bit. And uh, it's going on the screen. This it says, after looking in all directions, how many knows this story? After looking in all directions, he was sure, sure that no one was watching. Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. How many know this is a bad day in Moses' life? Right? Listen, hopefully this is a situation we never find ourselves in. What do we do now, uh, right? So Moses looks left. He looks to the right. There's nobody watching, kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand. Why did he do it? He was angry. He was moved by feelings inside of himself, feelings of isolation, feelings of pain, feelings of, of, of trying to do something great for his people, but also feel, just feelings of anger. Right, he's angry about the Egyptian. He looks to the left, there's nobody there, looks to the right, and then moved by these powerful desires and drives within him, he kills this Egyptian and buries him in the sand. What did that mean for Moses, that moment? It meant 40 years in the wilderness. How many you know that that's a relatively significant delay in the plan of God? See, Moses looks left, he looks right, but he forgets to look. Because God's always watching how we behave. And if we just keep looking left and right, do you know what? The reality of most of the things I've talked about is there's nobody watching left and right. There's only God watching from above. And, is, and when God's looking down, like Bette Midler tells us, when God's looking down on us, when God's watching us, what does the Bible say? Why is God watching us? This is, there's only one real bit in the Bible where it talks a lot about God watching us. It says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking, 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 like the eye of Sauron. Right? And I've always thought, I don't know, I grew up in church. I know some of you guys did as well. I always imagine God's looking to make, to make sure he can keep an accurate record of how many times Jordan is a loser. Right? How many of you know that? I've kept God busy. 41 years I've been keeping God busy. 
How many times does Jordan mess up? How many times is Jordan out of line? How many times is Jordan evil? How many times is Jordan disgusting? How many times is Jordan out uh, 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 farting in public places, right? All those sorts of things. Has Jordan brushed his teeth? All those things that your mum, you know what I mean? We project onto God all the most dangerous people in our lives, our mum and our Sunday school teachers. But the reality is God's eyes looking to and fro throughout the earth, Second Chronicles says, to see who he can get behind, to see who he can fully support. So when God's looking down at Moses in this moment, the reason that there's now a 40-year delay is because God can't fully get behind Moses now until Moses works out whatever just happened in that moment. The reality is God's looking down on your life. He's looking down on my life. He's looking down and He has a plan. He's got a good plan for our life and He's wanting to accelerate us. He's wanting to accelerate His purposes in us and He's looking down on us. And when we make those wrong decisions left and right without being aware of Him watching, all we're doing is delaying His purposes. All we're doing is putting back uh, into the future what God has got planned for us, right? Uh, the question you've got to ask yourself, should we, talking, should we be talking about this in church? How many people think? We don't, we don't do this every week, right? The, you know, you can get bored of anything, I imagine. <laughs> Tim's like, I don't think we could get bored of sex. <laughs> Is that why you were laughing? No, Tim was laughing right now. You know, because sometimes we sometimes we could come to church and just talk about some Bible Bible type stuff. But you know, any sermon that's not connecting with the reality of sex and money and power is not really going to help us grow. Because <laughs> cause we're not going to get chipped over. You know, it's not really it's not really uh, you know our understanding of the the lamps and the tabernacle are not really the thing that's going to help us deal with the issues that we face in our life. You know, I'm sure it could enrich our knowledge of God. But there's a big jump between there, there and what we have to face in our workplace or in the world around us or at high school, right? Um, do you know, the whole sex thing is one of the first things that the Bible talks about. Uh, and sex itself is actually God's first gift to humanity. Well, it depends. The second gift if you count napping. Naps was God's first gift and the second gift was sex, you know. So no, God puts uh, Adam to sleep, he has a nap. How many people believe that naps are a gift from God, ordained by God? And particularly as men, they're something that we need to engage in, right? Amen. Preach it, preach it, right? So, so Adam has a nap and the Bible says that God takes a rib out of Adam or he takes, the Hebrew is that he takes a side or he takes an aspect out of Adam's personhood, and then he creates Eve, right? And then Adam sees Eve, and Adam's, Adam then composes this quite a full-on poem. Whoa, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? It's a relatively graphic little statement about the coming together of realities, right? God created all of that. It doesn't say that, you know, and God turned, you know, you know, built a, a little shelter around them and, 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 or, or whatever. And it's something that God created. If you read the book, The Song of Solomon, um, <laughs> fortunately, scholars now are no longer saying that The Song of Solomon is a poetic picture about the relationship between Christ and the church because that's a spooky way to think about the church, right? <laughs> now they say this is a Hebrew poem, a love poem, which was taught to young people to help them understand the power of sex and the connected power of relationships. Same if you read the if you read the Proverbs. Proverbs says things like, 
you know, let your wife's breasts satisfy you all of the days of your life, right? These are memory verses we have up at our house, you know. You know, they don't. <laughs> no, we, we don't. I just I have it memorized anyway. The, um, the Bible talks about sex all the time. And, and, because, and it's, it talks about sex as a, as a pleasurable gift from God. The various parts of church history have taught that sex was only designed by God for procreation, which is stupid. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. If God wanted to, he could just sneeze on the dirt every, every, uh, every 20 years and another generation of people would be there, right? God didn't need to create sex for procreation. He just thought, we well, you know what, let's do procreation and let's do it in a fun way, right? That's what he decided, right? Let's do it in a way that's actually going to build relationships so that actually, if you read it, it's not just about procreation. It's about connected family. And we need some sort of superpower connection between a man and a woman so that it can create the space for family because family then becomes the foundation of all culture, right? Now, if this afternoon, if you've got some jobs to do around the house, let's say you're going to chop down a tree or something like that, cut up an old car. Anyone doing that? No, yeah, it's not parapram, I guess. The um, if you let's go, let's say you're gonna go down to hire pool and you're gonna hire like a big, like a twelve inch steel cutting grinder, or a mass, let's say you're gonna hire a massive chainsaw, right? You're gonna hire the chainsaw. You hire the chainsaw. I don't. When you get down there, do you know what they will do when they give you the chainsaw? Do you know what they'll do straight after that? They'll they'll, they'll give you a list of really specific rules about how to use the chainsaw. There'll, there'll be rules about how to use essential, right? So when they do that, I know what your response will be. You'll be like, you just don't want me to have fun. <laughs> you're, just trying to, you're just trying to limit my expression. I just want, you, you give me the chainsaw now, and then now you give me all these restrictions. But that's what, that's what the modern world says about the rules God's given around sex. Well, I just want to do what I want. I just, I just, want, I just want to express myself. I just want to go with my instincts. I'll tell you what, don't go with your instincts when it comes to a big chainsaw. Don't just do whatever you want when it comes to a big chainsaw because a chainsaw can bring great pleasure. Cutting down the tree, cutting up something, and it's incredibly powerful, right? Which means it's dangerous, right? So what does God do when he gives us the gift of sex? He gives us some simple rules, right? And it's not because God hates us. It's not because God's trying to, do you know, just do what, do what you feel, brother. Come on, man, just express yourself. You just gotta you just gotta go with your gut. You gotta go with your instinct. You know what? All of that is terrible advice. Terror this we have prisons because of that advice. Everybody in the prison, do you know what they did? They did what they felt like at the time. They did what they did what was they did what their anger told them. They did what their, their desire for money told them. They did what their desire for power told them. Right? The way, the way to successful living is very often to not do what you want. Do not trust your instincts. Do you know, if, if it wasn't for just do what you want and trust your instincts, there'd be no timeshare industry. Right? There'd be no, there'd be no crazy buy now, buy now on TV, right? But, but because we're stupid, right, we end up making decisions on instinct that we need to come back to some of the rules of life and sex is one of those. Genesis chapter 2.24, the scripture grew up there, but it says in the old language, a man shall leave his father and a mother. This is God's rule for sex because God's awesome, particularly in the Old Testament. He does the rules in a poem. A man will leave his father and his mother and is joined to his wife 
and the two are united in one. Or the old translation says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become, what's the old school word? It's one flesh, right? A uh, joining of life together, right? Jesus added that what God has joined, when Jesus referenced the rules, he said, what God has joined, let nobody separate, right? So these are really quite simple rules. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, right? So that's, that's a significant rule, right? In the, chainsaw, in, the danger, in the powerful, beautiful world of sex, a man is joined to a woman and they leave their families of origin and create new, a new identity together. So sex is not about creating a new relationship only, it's creating a new identity together. You know, the reality is that having a sex drive is not the problem, but letting your sex drive is the problem. But letting sex drive things is basically how the, the modern culture would encourage us to do sex, right? What is it? You know, science teaches us we're all animals. We're all animals. Let's teach them all that in the fourth form. You're all animals, right? But when the, the fourth formers behave like animals, the science teachers are the first ones that are upset. They're like blooming animals out there. What were you just teaching them? Oh, biology? What did you tell them? They're all animals, Right? Yeah, we actually, you know, you know your car's got like a really powerful engine in it, but the engine's not driving the car. It's powering the car, but hopefully there's a human being, or at least Google Drive or someone like that, uh, uh, hopefully there's some level of intelligent life at the steering wheel. That's not always the case, right? But let's hope that the car's coming in the opposite direction at 100 kilometers an hour. There's somebody behind the steering wheel, hopefully not an eight-year-old, right? Hopefully not a six-year-old. Hopefully someone who's got the ability to make the right decisions with that power that's in them, right? Our sex drive is designed to drive us towards this new identity we create with a lifelong partner. Now, I'm not judging anyone's past, I'm speaking to your future. And I'm saying, come on, the drives that are in you have a righteous outworking possibility. Not if you just let them go wherever they want, right? You know, you can, you can drive your car with all of its power to a righteous destination. But if you take your hands off the wheel, it's not going to be great. Just put your foot down. I just, I'm just going with my instincts, man. Right? It's going to be a short trip, Right? But the reality is our sex drive is not just a drive. It's not just a drive. We're supposed to decide where it drives us to. You know, the research is really clear that people without a history of multiple sexual partners or a history of pornography actually enjoy more satisfying sex life from now on. So you can change your lifestyle as you go forward. It's much like the pineapple here, which is in our, it's in our picture. And I've brought, for your viewing pleasure, I've brought... I know, pretty amazing. You don't see a pineapple in church every day. Just look at that, would you? Uh, we, were, we were going to mention that we would have a live pineapple here in church. But then we thought the venue has a limited capacity. There's already a hole in the floor. And uh, we thought we didn't want thousands of people here to see the pineapple. Do you know, uh, in the 1500s, 1600s, Columbus and Coes sailed into the New World, and they discovered, among other things, Mayan gold and other things like that, they discovered these pineapples, right? Why are they called pineapples? Because they look like a pine cone, 
but they're tangy and juicy like an apple. Again, a great name. Just a brilliant, simple name. A pineapple, right? Fortunately, unfortunately, this one doesn't have a hairdo, which is probably the thing that makes it great. But obviously, modern shipping costs uh, mean that we weren't able to do that. But uh, first thing to is pineapples arrived in Europe and it was a scandal. Like it went crazy. Pineapple went crazy. Pineapple went bananas. It went <laughs> that was completely unintended, right? But it did. It went crazy, right? It, 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 it affected it was, pineapples. Reflected in artwork. That's a little pineapple up there. Uh, if you look at uh, big cathedral in London, there's pineapples in there to show how powerful and rich the church was. And people would people would save up to buy a pineapple, right? Uh, and then they would have a pineapple at their house, and they they, they they would have them under those little glass domes. Have you seen those? put the pineapple under a little glass dome, make it last a bit longer. And then they would invite their friends around for dinner parties to view the pineapple, to look at the pineapple. No, touch the pineapple. Look at the pineapple. And, and it was the ultimate decadence to actually eat some pineapple. Most people wouldn't do that. And if you, if you look at how much people were spending on pineapples, right, most people wouldn't eat it. They would, they would actually, <laughs> this is crazy, they would just keep it in the house until it rotted. <laughs> right, so they, they could show it. And they often would display it in a, near a window so people walking past could see, wow, they have a pineapple. And in today's money, they were spending eight to $9,000 per pineapple. And they would savor it, they would save it, they'd protect it. In your lifetime, you might only see one or two pineapples. I bought this one for $3.99 at New World down the road. But the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what's changed from the 1600s to now? How has the pineapple changed? Has, has the pineapple changed? The pineapple has not changed. There may be some selective breeding going on. Who knows what doll got up to? It could be massively changed. But the general idea of a pineapple has not changed. But what has changed from the 1600s to now is our attitude towards pineapple. We're scandalous enough to ruin a pizza with pineapple. Right? Imagine what's the cost, what would your $5 pizza at Pizza Hut be like in $1,600 money, Right? Yeah, yeah. Even if, God forbid, you put pepper on it as well, because they had to come through the Middle East, and the Arabs told these stories about where pepper came from. You know, they had to climb mountains to get it. But you know, sex is the same sort of thing as this. It hasn't changed. Sex hasn't changed in its power and its beauty and its wonder, but our attitude towards it has changed. Where in many ways, our culture, and we in ourselves, we're part of our culture, where we have devalued and diminished it. I oh, was we watching a TV show on Netflix the other day, and just one comment in it. So the mum puts the kids to bed and then says, oh, no, the dads put the kids to bed, and then the mum says, oh, the kid's in bed, and says, oh, so-and-so's asleep, and, I, and Johnny, I think, is watching porn. And then mum just makes the joke, oh, no, no uh, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree type of joke. Just a little joke about a 13-year-old, oh, just watching porn damaging his brain, affecting dopamine responses, uh, sowing destruction into future relationships. There's no problem 
There's no problem being honest and open about where we're really at in our life. But when we take sin and then we draw the target around it and say, no, this is what we're aiming for, then we've got a problem, right? Then we've got a culture that doesn't even see what's going on. You know, in John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus bumps into this woman as the, it's the uh, there's a funny joke about it, I would say. The woman, the woman of Samaria. And um, the, or the woman at the well, right? Jesus is traveling through this town, bumps into this woman. And this is a woman and, and she's had five husbands. And then now she's with another person who she's not married to. And because of that, she's ostracized from society. Because of that, she, she devalues herself. And we don't, we don't know huge amount about her other than what we can infer from the story. She was at the well at midday, which she only at the well at midday because that's when there was no other women there. No, other, no one else from town was there so she could get water without sort of people looking at her weird and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus says to her something pretty interesting uh, in, in verse 13. It's 13 and 14. Jesus says, um, anyone who drinks this water from the well will soon become thirsty again. Now, it's special water. It's a well that Jacob had dug, and it was sort of a famous well. And Jesus said, you're still going to get thirsty again. Uh, the next verse, verse 14, it says that, Jesus said, but those who drink the water that I give them will never be thirsty again, and it will become a fresh and bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. There's a phrase I made you to repeat over and again at the start, that, uh, that He heals me. When Jesus comes into our life, He changes the bitter water to sweet. The, re- the reality is we can, we, can, we can talk a lot about God's rules for sex and God's plan for sex, but the reality is that all of us in some measures of our life miss the mark when it comes to living out a life that honors God. doesn't matter whether you're old or whether you're young, whether you're a man or you're a woman, we miss the mark somewhere. Or we've been affected directly by somebody else's missing of the mark. That's the thing about sin. Somebody else can make a mistake which damages us. And we still need what from God? We still need healing. Here's the picture in the Bible. Moses and the guys, they find that bit of water. And God shows Moses what? A piece of wood. And Jesus is talking to this woman who's suffering from the bitter water of sort of a failed sexuality, a failed relational life. And Jesus says, you can keep drawing your own water. You can keep trying to clean yourself. You can keep trying to refresh yourself. But if you come to me, I'll give you water that that turns to eternal life because He's the God who heals us. And the reality is that Jesus Himself was, was nailed to a cross. The piece of wood that Moses saw is the piece of wood that Jesus is nailed to. It's a sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross that sets us free, that makes the water sweet again. Not our efforts, not our energies, not our desire to be super, super holy. Those things tend to make the water more bitter. But the reality is when we can come to Jesus and we can open our heart and say, Jesus, I need your healing power. I need your touch in my life because I need from this day forward, I want to live a different, check this out, I want to live a different trajectory in my life. Do you know you can take a wrong step and you can still complete the journey. This is the challenge we have in our Christian life sometimes. 
we know God has a plan and a purpose for us and we start launching out towards it and then we take a wrong step and we feel bad, which is a good thing to feel bad when you're going the wrong direction. But you know, if you're on a journey and you take a wrong step, do you know what you can, do you know how far are you from getting back on track? Just one, you actually just one right step. But what we find, what I find in, in working with other people in, in dealing with my own emotions in terms of relating with God on a journey to become more like Jesus is that when I take a wrong step, my tendency is to stop and make this my new home. I'm just going to stay here because I feel so miserable and ashamed. But if we can break out of the habit of camping in our wrong step and then get back into the habit of repenting and moving forward towards God, what God's got for us, again, connecting again with that piece of wood that Moses saw, with the cross of Jesus, we can find freedom in our world. Do you know what? If you've got problems in, er- in, in areas of the things that we've talked about today, you, you will not be fixed today. Guarantee that. But do you know what you can do today? You can take a right step on a journey. Do you know what you can do tomorrow? You can take a wrong step. And do you know after after that what you can do? You can take a right step. Do you know how many times you can keep taking right steps just all the time and forever? Because God's at work in us. And the Bible's really clear that He leads us from glory to glory. His Spirit at work within us. Amen. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads and let me pray just before we go. Perhaps you're here and maybe you've never made a decision to open your heart and respond to the grace and the love, the mercy of Jesus. The reality is that no amount of religious effort, no amount of good behavior can earn the favor of God. There was nothing that Moses could do to that water. Salt and pepper wasn't going to make it less poisonous. But when Moses throws in that piece of wood, that, that lake in the desert becomes a place of refreshing. When we connect the desert, the, the, the poisonous heart of our human existence is connected with the cross of Jesus. God makes the water sweet again. He brings His grace, His love, and His forgiveness. And I want to finish our service just now, or in a minute I'll finish the service, but just now. I want to pray for people who wanted to, for the very first time, acknowledge Jesus as your Savior. Ask Him to turn that, the waters of your spirit and your soul to turn them sweet again. Maybe you've made this decision in the past, but for whatever reason, perhaps you find yourself a long way away from God. Could I encourage you to make the decision again today? Take a right step again today to acknowledge Jesus. Invite Him again into your heart as your Savior and as your Lord. So I'm going to ask you in a moment for you to lift your hand if you're making this decision today. Everyone's got their heads bowed and their eyes closed. I'm not asking you to lift your hand so that you can feel embarrassed. I'm asking you to lift your hand just so that I can know who's praying this prayer with me this morning. So if that's you, shoot your hand up and say, yeah, that's me, Jordan. I want to make the decision this morning to acknowledge Jesus as my Savior, inviting His grace in my life, making Him the Lord of all of my days. If that's you, give me a quick wave. Once I've seen your hand, you can put it back down. Then when people have had a chance to respond, we'll pray. I haven't seen anybody's hand yet. There's obviously no drama. There's definitely no pressure. This is an opportunity for you to take if you want to, to acknowledge Jesus and pray a prayer, inviting Him into your world. Awesome. I haven't seen anybody's hand, but could we all stand together and pray before we go? Is that all right? What I want you to do is I just want you to open your hands like just like that. Do you know, I'm, con- I'm convinced of this one thing. We could all know a new level of freedom and wonder when it comes to the life-changing power of sex, romance, and love. We could, we could all do with some transformation in our thinking. If you live 
If you live in New Zealand in June 2017, your thinking and your understandings have been affected by the changes in society. Do you know what else? It's not your fault. If there was a gas attack in this room and one of those heaters started pumping poisonous gas into the room, it wouldn't be your fault. It's not your fault that you're affected by the pervading nature of our society, but it's also not a place you have to be trapped. You don't have to live with the ongoing effects of it because He is a God who heals us. Holy Spirit, I just invite you and welcome you into this place. Lord, I pray, and Lord, we, we prayed in the prayer meeting, and I'm praying again, Lord God, that you would speak your word into individual lives. Lord, I thank you, God, that you're not saying the same thing to each and every person in this room, but you're coming with the same love, the same grace, the same acceptance, and the same promise of freedom and of power and of a future destiny, Lord God. And I pray this morning for everyone in the Equippers Church Wellington that we'd be equipped again with the knowledge of your plan, your purposes, your grace towards us. And Lord, I pray even into this next four Sundays through July as we as we dig into what did, what are you say in your word about how we live out this area of our life. Lord, I pray that we'd find new levels of understanding in our mind that sets us free. Lord, I pray we'd we'd know a greater sense of your love, Father, that sustains us and that holds us. And Lord, I pray we'd be able to find a new way of feeling accepted by your grace, of accepting others in the journey that they're on. Lord God, that we'd be a community that is lit up, that is alight and alive with your grace. Lord God, alive and shining brightly with your goodness. Lord God, that we'd be on a stand, a light in this city, Uh, with transforming power, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. Awesome. Let's give God a shout of praise. Super good. Uh, Jono is preaching next week. I'm preaching next week. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Jono's doing some as well, and uh, it's going to be awesome uh, as we go through the month of July. In a couple of weeks, we are going to be live streaming, okay? from Auckland. So uh, Dr. John Gray uh, is preaching in Auckland the Sunday before shout. So we're going to live stream that. So that'll be in the middle. That'll be a bit of light relief from talking about sex. It'll be, it'll be good. Uh, if you haven't seen John Gray on YouTube, whatever, have a Google, Dr. John Gray. Uh, add the word Lakewood and you'll find him. Uh, he's got a whole TV uh, show in the States on the Oprah Network. And he's the theological teaching pastor at Lakewood in Houston or the Metroplex area. Uh, and so he's going to be an awesome blessing to the church in New Zealand. First time he's been in New Zealand. Uh, he's super funny, super awesome, prophetic sort of preacher as well. And um, yeah, yeah he's, he's pretty clever. So have a look at him on YouTube. And, uh, and it'd, that'd be a cool service to invite people to because it'd be fun uh, to be part of all that as well. Also right through the this month, if you've got, if you've got friends who are interested in finding out more about Jesus, you could bring them along next week. And that understand very, very clearly that the reality of Jesus is real in the real world, right? And uh, brings freedom into our realities. Amen? Amen. Amen. Do you know what? I've got this. I was talking to Colleen this morning. And do you know what? I, I was just thinking, how, how can we transform our city? Or how can we begin to believe God transforming our city? And I just have this view of my own neighborhood. And I think if God could reach the people on our left... And if He could reach the people on our right, and if God could reach the family over the back fence, the people across the road, the people down the road one, the people up the road one, do you know that's like 35 or 40 people that literally live next door to me? And I just thought, how many people live next door to us as a church? 
And you know what? We might, do you know what? We can't save the people over the back fence, but we absolutely can pray for them. I wonder if we could begin to commit across the month of July to pray every day for our neighbors. Jesus used the word neighbor. It's a pretty challenging thought. Maybe, maybe it's a friend at work you could pray for. Maybe it's an actual physical neighbor across the back fence. Could we commit for a month to begin praying for our neighbors uh, and, and believe that God's going to give us some, some wisdom about how we could reach out with the love of God? Amen. Who, who's going to join me in that? We'll remind you each week. Let's begin praying for neighbors, but praying for God to reach our city. Amen. Very, very cool.